Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A warning, as always, this episode, we will be discussing things of an adult nature, as you would expect. But if that isn't your cup of tea, feel free to tune out now. No one is allowed near the king's marriage bed once it's been made ready. Wilt thou, Victoria, have this man Albert to thy wedded husband, who live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony? The epitome of primness and properness, with chastity and purity of royal weddings. Do we ever really consider the royals getting down and dirty? Well, I suppose we do. But with the business of heirs to consider, what do you find behind the bedroom doors of our historic royals? I'm Kate Lister, and today we are getting betwixt the royal sheets. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. Madame de Pompadour, Edward VII, Henry VIII and Marie Antoinette. These people were the toast of the court. They may have been powerful because they were sexy or maybe they were sexy because they were powerful. To a lot of people, they were both. Charlotte and Sophie went out and about to ask the British public which historic royal they would crown the sexiest. Uh, Charles II. We've got the same style, I'll go with him. Maybe like Queen Victoria in the youth? First name that's popping into my head is Mary Queen of Scots, but I don't know why. My answer no, because I liked her hair. The only answer I have is uh, Albert, because he's played by that really fit guy in The Young Victoria. Rupert Fiennes? Fiennes? Him. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about royal traditions, affairs and sexually transmitted illnesses, I'm joined by Eleanor Herman, best-selling author of Sex with Kings, Sex with Queens and a whole lot more. Let's get into it. Oh, well, welcome to Betwixt the Sheets, Eleanor Harmon. I am such a huge fan of your books, Sex with Kings and Sex with Queens. I just 
I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl all over you because I just adored them. I'm so glad that you are here. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a delight to be here and, and talk about all those things that happened in palaces betwixt the sheets. Oh, honestly, I'm so thrilled that you're here to take us through this. There isn't anybody better. So we are thinking today about royal sex, royal sexual indiscretions, just what happens betwixt the royal sheets between the most expensive sheets <laughs> that you can that you can get, right? Right. And I think it's particularly interesting royal sex because it's not like any other sex. That doesn't mean I know personally, but it's <laughs> it's the kind of sex where there's a public interest in this that's beyond just oh, hey, a bit of gossip. Like nations have vest or did have vested interests in this yes uh, indeed they did they had interest certainly in the king's sex with the queen to see what progeny might appear but there was also interest in the king's love affair with his royal mistress because many of these women were extraordinarily powerful madame de pompadour in the mid 18th century you know actually ran uh, the Seven Years' War against Frederick the Great of Prussia, and she appointed ambassadors and generals, and she pretty much ran the show. So, yes, wow. there was great national interest in who the king was sleeping with. The power that goes with that is colossal, isn't it? Well, it is. And some kings, like Louis Fourteenth, he was known for his bevy of fragrant mm. uh, mistresses. He did not allow them to have any political power. But they had uh, tremendous power when it came to you know, the arts and literature, and they sponsored playwrights wow. and uh, musical composers, and they led the fashion. So even there, these women had a great deal of influence. I definitely want to talk to you about the mistresses, and I'm, I'm limbering up to them because they're my favourite. But we'll start with the Queen, because I think that the Queen kind of like, she's not thought of in the same kind of sexy, fun, seductive, where, hey, loads of jewellery and let's have a great time as the mistresses are. She's the wife with a really important job. And her job throughout history has been to produce an heir. That was it. The queen, poor woman, usually started mm. off as a 14 or 15 year old princess, dragged mm. out of her home, never to see her homeland or her relatives again thrown into this foreign land. A lot of times she didn't know the language. It might be a different religion. They usually sent her friends and ladies and waitings home because they were making trouble. And the queen was really nothing more than a walking uterus with a crown on her head. It was all about whether she could uh, produce children. Uh, she was supposed to shut the hell up, sew shirts for the poor, pray, and just be very pious and quiet. And wow. many times, you know, the king, he would grow to respect her or love her as a friend, but there were very few true marriages of love between kings and queens. This, this is a business arrangement, isn't it? It, it was really? definitely a business arrangement and for the wow. production of heirs and treaties and alliances with foreign nations. But, the, you know, picture this young girl goes to a foreign mm. land and her husband, she's usually already married by proxy. So they had two different ceremonies in two different countries because it was seen as unseemly for a young woman of royal blood to travel without being married. You see? So, so they'd get married before they'd met each other? Yes, they, they were already married. So the deed was done. They, they couldn't say, wow. Well, at the first, Louis XIV's <laughs> brother, when he met his wife, she was already his wife, was a rather robust German princess. And he was a gay fop with exquisite taste. 
Oh, it's and, going well. <laughs> and he looked at this plump woman with a scrubbed face and a very plain dress, and he said behind his fan to one of his male lovers, Mon Dieu, how can I sleep with that? So... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no! You know, and and the queen or all royal women really were lucky if, as long as their husband could have sex with a woman. Some of them could not. They imagine how hard it was for these poor men as well. Many of them were also in love with their mistresses. Some of them were syphilitic. They were so inbred, they were impotent. I mean, you know, this poor girl would arrive there to find a whole bunch of horrors awaiting her. It's a pubescent nightmare, isn't it? <laughs> this is just awful. So I'm sort of getting the sense that a lot of this conjugal royal rights was probably not the thing that they wanted to be doing. So how did the courtiers and people surrounding them make sure that they did have sex? Were there people in the room? Were they watching them have sex? There was a rather archaic ritual on the wedding night where the archbishop and the nobles, the ministers would... (laughs) They would put the bride and groom together in the bed by candlelight and they would sit there and watch as the marriage was supposedly consummated, which I'm sure it wasn't really consummated. I think the the bride was coaxed at a certain point to squeak and to cry out. And then um, they could all agree the marriage was consummated and leave the room, you know, sprinkling holy water. And then the bride and groom could get to real business. So, so this poor teenage girl was told at a certain point to go, ooh, that hurts. And then they'd be like, that's it. I, I imagine. <gasps> oh, my. It just doesn't get... It's just not sexy, is it? That's just... <laughs> it's horrific. Wow. That it is... Okay. Just in the middle of this, have you come across many examples in your research of royal husbands and wives who really did love each other? That it wasn't this kind of like, look, you've just got to do it. Just lie back, think of England, France, Spain, whatever it is, and just do it. George II of England and and his wife, Caroline, really adored each other. Now, that didn't stop him from having mistresses. By that point in history, you know, everyone was trying to copy France, which had the royal, they had invented the idea of an official position at court named maîtresse en titre, the royal mistress, and they did it with great aplomb. And so it's really funny to look at the English and the Germans trying to emulate the French. the French, and they did so very badly. I mean, they just That's, always... It sounds about right. They, they botched <laughs> everything, you know, and so George II felt like he had to have a mistress if he was going to be seen as a virile man. And so so he picked one who was one of his wife's ladies-in-waiting and was a very nice woman. As a matter of fact, the queen did not want him to get rid of her. At a certain point, he was bored with her and said, you know, I'm going to get rid of her. And the queen was afraid if they got rid of this poor woman, that he would get some sexy, ambitious young thing who would be unkind to the queen and start power struggles at court. And so she convinced him to keep this poor woman on. Oh, my goodness. The position of royal mistress, pun intended, that (laughs) is it wasn't just the king shagging around, was it? Like, this was a job. This was an actual court role, a position. Yes, it was, uh, depending upon the nation. Um, It started in France with Francois Ier, Francis I, in the 1520s. And then it continued... Uh, spread to England, certainly with the court of uh, Charles II, Nell Gwynne, and all of his wonderful and colorful mistresses. And it, it pretty much spread across 
Europe. And, you know, depending upon each king, you know, these women would have a great deal of political power or perhaps just power over the arts. Wow. I mean, that's a hell of a job ambition, right? At careers day at school. That's the definition of I'm going to shag my way to the top. Well, be you the know, royal mistress. <laughs> the reason I started researching uh, sex with kings to begin with was because I was just interested in a time and place where a group of people are told, no, you can't do mm. that. You can't be that. Not possible. And you had these bright uh, well-educated, ambitious women. Some of them wanted political party. They couldn't run for mayor of London. They couldn't attend Cambridge University. And so the only option for them was to shag the king and see what power and wealth they could amass. And the riches were just unheard of. Many of them cashed out after a few years. The king would, you know, once the women were, say, 30, 35, they were too old. Oh, and so he'd go for a 16-year-old. Uh, but he would make his retiring mistress a duchess and give her a chest of jewels and uh, lands wow. that were farmed and castles. And so it was very remunerative. It, well played, ladies. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've researched a lot of the history of sex, commercial sex, sex for money. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is that it's one of the only careers option throughout history that has that level of social mobility, that a woman could be born like Nell Gwynne was in abject poverty and die the mistress of the king, his favourite, titled. I can't think of any other option that would, that had that level of social mobility. Not that like it only happened to a precious few, right. but... Well, you know, Nell Gwynne, because of her low birth, her mother ran a body house and apparently um, stumbled into a gutter, which has water in it, and she was so drunk she drowned. So this, this is poor oh Nell, poor Nell Gwynne's mother. But because of her low birth, she was not elevated to the official royal mistress. She was oh. part of a revolving harem, and, you know, Charles absolutely loved her for her sense of humor. She, you know, she was pretty much illiterate. But she was so hilariously funny. One of the royal mistresses, uh, one of the noble ones, was very proud that she had a new uh, carriage with eight white horses. And she drove it up and down in front of Nell Gwynne's house to say, ha ha, the king gave me this and you didn't get one. So the next morning, Nell put on some old raggedy clothes, rented an ox cart and drove it back and forth in front of the mistress's house crying, whores to market ho. <laughs> because she kept telling these women, yep, you're rich and you're noble, but you're a whore just like I am. So, you know, don't get all snooty about that. Oh, Nell, that is such a power move. The more I hear about that woman, the more I just adore her. That's like She completely embraced what she was. She played the absolute best hand that she could. Well, she did. And another of my favorite Nell stories was um, one of the royal mistresses came to Nell's house for dinner and said, oh, I'm sleeping with the king tonight. And Nell hadn't been invited. So Nell put a laxative in her dinner and she was on the chamber pot all night. So the king called for Nell. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> See, she she knows what she's doing. And so one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you is because I think about this a lot. So uh, if I was to transplant you back in time and uh, you were to open a school for aspiring royal mistresses, let's just say, what tips would you give? What makes a successful royal mistress? Because some of them absolutely nail it, like Nell Gwinders, and some of them come an absolute cropper. There are examples of royal mistresses being poisoned, of being run out of the country, of dying in poverty. So what 
it seems like it's a really fine line that these ladies are walking. What makes for a good royal mistress? What would you tell them? What I found in my research uh, was really a shocker. You think of royal mistresses and you think of a young, sexy, gorgeous woman. And while certainly your looks and sex appeal would attract the king's attention, it would not hold him. Ah. The most successful royal mistresses were just jolly good company. You know, the king had the stress of the world on his shoulders, you know, war and peace and famine and drought and a bankrupt tread, all of this. And at the end mm. of the day, he wanted to retire to some comfortable rooms with a charming woman who could make him laugh. You know, Madame de Pompadour worked with the postmaster at Versailles Palace and they opened up all of the courtiers' letters before they were sent out and those coming in. She got to read them and she picked the funniest gossip that the Duke of so-and-so has hemorrhoids and, you know, all of it. And so she would have these letters waiting for him and they would roar with laughter. My, my school would, would be to teach the women just to be charming and good company. See, I'm taking notes at the moment. I hope everyone else is as well. But absolutely, now that you've just said that, I'm now thinking back over what I've read about royal mistresses. And you see this coming up again and again, is that they were good looking-ish, but they were witty and funny and sharp and that's what they had going for them over the long run yes you know the king might find a beautiful woman he would have the official mistress and sometimes he had like a second layer of three or four you know mistresses like like charles ii did um but the ones that lasted did so because of their charm and the the ease and comfort they offered the king the funny thing about madame de pompadour who's really the poster child for royal mistresses, she lasted almost 20 years until her death, is that she actually, after a few years, she developed a, a chronic yeast infection. Oh, hello. Um, and there, you know, there was no medication at the time to, you know, oh. today you, you pop a couple of pills, woo, it's gone. But, you know, it was, sex was very painful for her. And so she kept her official position, the palaces in Versailles, her income, her servants, by arranging for uh, young uh, very young, like 13, 14, 15 years old. These days, the right. king would be put in jail, uh, mm. but but he had a, a taste for that. And she made sure that they were uneducated, that they could barely read and write, so that they and they were from a you know, very bad background. So he would uh, have a fling with them, and then they'd be gone. That they would be no threat to her position. Wow, because I suppose it's quite a precarious position, really, isn't it, mistress? Because you can be dismissed. It's not like the wife. You can you be can dismissed just, at any moment any and moment. you have dozens, if not hundreds of women vying every day to have you wow. dismissed. And there were, you know, all kinds of rumors spread around that, oh, the mistress has a venereal disease or, you know, there were various groups that, you know, for political reasons or religious reasons wanted to get rid of her. I think it was a horrible job. You know, if it had been me, I would be mistress for two or three years, get my castle and my sack of jewels and just, you know, head the hell out of there. I think it killed Madame de Pompadour. You know, she had a series of miscarriages. The king was very selfish and uh, would never let her recuperate, whether she was feverish, bleeding, whatever. She had to put on her diamond earrings, a smile on her face, her court gown, and have dinner with him and amuse him. And she never threw in the towel and said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> why don't we why don't we let one of these younger women do this? It's not really all that fun anyway. You know, uh, and so she died at 43. You know, I think she was just exhausted. She she never took care of her health. 
Oh, when you say it like that, I'm kind of coming around to thinking the Queen's had the easy job. No, the Queen's had a lousy job too. I mean, the problem with being the Queen is that you could not retire to your estate in the country. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. You're, you're stuck there and um, the Queen was, yeah, maybe there was a certain amount of respect, but that's not where the power was. So all of the important yeah. people were, you know, paying court to the King and his mistress and not to you. And if the king wanted to put you in a drafty tower of the palace, you'd have to go there. I mean, the one thing I like about um, the royal mistress is that they did have the freedom to come and go if they wanted. Wow. Eleanor and I will be back to talk more royal sex after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Was there any equivalent for queens? Did queens, I mean, they must have done, they must have had lovers. It was never an official, you know, the royal gigolo to the queen. But was is, is there evidence of that? Were they just better at being secretive about it? I don't know if they were better. Uh, I, I wrote Sex with the Queen hoping that I might find eight or ten queens who had love affairs. And I, what I found was there, was, there were dozens. But... <laughs> You know, because a queen's reputation, a woman's reputation was based on her chastity and her loyalty to her husband. This was never trumpeted the way it was with kings that they to be virile, they had to have mistresses. So it was kept more quiet. In many cases, if she had given the king a couple of heirs, he didn't mind particularly if she had lovers because, you know, he had his lovers. And if it kept her happy, who cares? You know, there were a couple of gay kings. One was a king of Sweden in the 1790s. He could not bear the thought of touching a woman. So after eight years of marriage, she's still virgin. And the country was growing restless because they needed an heir that he actually uh, insisted that she have an affair. And so she had two little oh, boys wow. and he's like, woo, I'm a father. And everyone was happy. Now, there was only one court 
where there was the position of the official gigolo. <laughs> oh, hello. Right. Okay. And that was, that was Catherine the Great. Of course. Of course it was. Mama Catherine. Go, tell me about Catherine the Great and her gigolos. Well, Catherine was an impoverished German prince. I mean, she wasn't even Russian. And she went there at about 15 to marry the crazy uh, syphilitic heir to the Russian throne. Um, who at a certain point when he became czar was going to kill her. He had this horrible hatred of her. And so she she ended up having him killed and seizing power herself, even though she's not even Russian. But she was so brilliant and um, she was a widow. So she would have a lover for five, six, seven years. And then for whatever reason, he would either die or he would get married. And she was very generous. She'd give, you know, huge estates as a wedding gift and then she would choose another one now the lovers kept staying about the same age say 25 to 30 and she kept getting older and so it's Leonardo you know, DiCaprio yes <laughs> <laughs> by the end uh, you know it looked like they were really quite a strange couple but she refused to to be a hypocrite you know and to pretend that she was this chaste yeah. woman and she said she said that the men are doing it I mean who cares you know and she never allowed off-colored jokes, you know, at court or at table, you know, but she had a lover at night. And the men were so horrified, first of all, that a female ruler was so incredibly successful. Mm. And secondly, I think they were afraid their wives would all take after her and start, you know, having their own lovers. So they invented the horse story. Yeah, do you want to explain a little bit about that, just for anyone who's unfamiliar with the horse I think story. most people probably know mm, it. Probably. I mean, unfortunately, they've so sullied her reputation that when anyone these days hears the name Catherine the Great, they immediately say, oh, the horse story. So the story was that she uh, was so lewd uh, and a nymphomaniac that she would have sex with horses and that one day when she was, what, 67, her servants were cantilevering a horse down on top of her to penetrate her when the ropes broke and the horse fell on her and crushed her, which, which was just, a, you know, a disgusting, wildly inaccurate story. Insane. She died of a stroke. The, the woman doesn't need to be having sex with horses. She can afford to kick that up a notch, can't she? She can afford a harem. She can certainly afford a better suspension system for a horse than the one that's been the, Now, that's a good point I hadn't thought of. <laughs> That's um, what's really interesting about Cat. There's so many things that are interesting about Catherine the Great, but you get this reoccurring that when you have a female in a position of power, a queen, there are attacks on her sexuality to make her appear loose and slutty and debauched and perverted. And you see it with Cleopatra and Catherine the Great and Anne Boleyn, of course. Yes, Anne Boleyn uh, in particular. You know, she was beheaded for allegedly having sex with five men, including. Mm her own brother, though, of course, she, she never did. However, she was inconvenient politically, you know, because of her, um, the uh, religion was reformed. They left mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, and she also wanted to change alliances from Spain to France. And you know, so there were a lot of people at court very much against her. And so when her husband, Henry VIII, his eyes started wandering, uh, you know, a plot was created to take off her head, and he didn't even question it. He's like, oh, good. And he was on to the next wife. I read somewhere that he sent for the executioner from France before she'd even had her trial. Oh, yes, yes. It was a foregone conclusion that she was going to be executed. And so Anne did not fit the bill of your typical queen who sat there and embroidered and prayed. I mean, she had broken up a, a royal marriage. 
It's also interesting to look at her daughter, who was, in fact, the crowned monarch, not the consort. And Elizabeth mm-hmm. I uh, never married. And of course, particularly the English enemies in Spain, Philip II, um, spread rumors that, you know, she was a very loose woman and she, you know, she had illegitimate children and, and all of these lovers. And she did love to flirt. She often said she couldn't understand how, how her reputation was so tarnished. She always had 13, 15 women with her day and night. She said, you know, I, I live on a stage. I, I'm never alone. I cannot understand how people have so bad an opinion wow. about me. She advertised herself as the Virgin Queen, didn't she? Which is a fabulous PR move. Do you think that she was or do you think that she had secret lovers? If, you know, I think she, she might have been. The only lover who I think they may have had a physical relationship uh, was Robert Dudley early on. The first couple of years he was married and then his wife was found at the bottom of her stairs with a broken neck and they thought the queen had done it. So at that point, she couldn't marry him. But soon after that, she developed smallpox and it really looked like she was dying. And so, you know, she on her deathbed, she swore that she had never been his lover. And back then, a deathbed confession is pretty much like a modern lie detector test because mm-hmm. you're convinced you're going to see God soon and all of your lies are going to weigh against you and maybe send you to hell. So so that one piece I thought was interesting. But after him, I don't think she had any lovers. And that just might have been a smart move. It just it seems like they're an awful lot of trouble, right? Well, they are trouble. And I think her smartest move was not to marry. Yeah, definitely. You know, when she first became queen... Her counselors didn't want her to sit in the meetings or meet with the ambassadors. They said, you just wait till you get a husband and then, you know, he'll he'll work with us. And she said, oh, hell no. You know, like, I, I'm in charge of this country, not you. Oh, well done, Lizzie. I, of course, such respect for that. I really do. But just while we're sort of on the subject of royal diseases... Talk to me a bit about sort of the history, because one of the things that I keep thinking about is that if you're supposed to have sex with the king, you're supposed to be making babies, there's no protected sex, even rudimentary condoms at the time. So venereal disease must have been a real issue. I mean, was was it was that something that's that's recorded? Oh, in yes, the it is. Char- Charles the Second. you know, he always had so many women of all levels in society, let's say, and he gave... Uh, venereal disease uh, to his mistress, Louise de Carroal, and she made him pay her two uh, enormously expensive necklaces, one of pearls and one of diamonds, to reimburse her for the venereal disease. Wow. You know, somehow she got over it. I mean, I guess there are times where it just goes into remission, and she lived to be in her 80s. However, Nell Gwynn also got it, and, you know, she had a stroke at 37, I mean, which mm. could be a result. You know, why would you have a stroke at 37? She was yeah. she was a slender was it, little thing. Was it syphilis? The, the, the king was spreading around. Yeah, the, I, I'm the not sure. Color. You know, they didn't have the test back then. So it was yeah. either syphilis or gonorrhea or, or, or something. But I, it could have killed Nell Gwynn. So, yes, mm. there it was rampant. Wow. And what about other records? Like, um, I'm thinking of Queen Victoria's son, who's known as Dirty Bertie. Oh yes, but by then they had condoms. You see, by the by the uh, the late eighteen hundreds. As a matter of fact, the first condom manufacturer in the UK had the picture of the Prince of Wales on the box. <laughs> no, yeah. oh, that's. Just, I assume that that was an actual royal patronage. <laughs> I I don't know, but it's hilariously funny and very appropriate when you, when you think about it. I mean, he put it about, didn't he? He was if it stayed still long enough, he would have a go at it. Well, 
he would. And, you know, when you look at these royal families, it's just so sad. I mean, because I think every, most people really tried their best and meant well. But Queen Victoria would not give her son anything to do. Why wouldn't she have him in on her council meetings? Why wouldn't she educate him about how to run the country? I mean, she could have died at any moment. Back then, you just never knew, right? Mm. And so he just became a, a you know, a wastrel. And I think with, you know, different parentage, he, he could have been effective uh, man in, in his earlier years. Wow. Something, because I'm always wary about judging the past through our own modern lens, but it's interesting to look back at the behavior of very, very powerful people and think, how would they have fared today in the Me Too movement? Not well, I don't think, quite a lot of them. No, absolutely not. At this day and age, we still need a Me Too movement, mm. hundreds of years after all of this, right? Yeah. One thing I've always been interested uh, in doing when uh, researching history is looking at the deathbeds, because we all have one. Yep. Like Louis XIV, who, you know, for his ideas of grandeur, and he lived to be, was he 77, really old for the time. He said he wished he he had spent his life more wisely and he hadn't you know, created all those unnecessary wars in Europe, you know, for his ideas of personal grandeur. And so it, it got me to thinking about my own deathbed. You know, I, I, something I would advise everyone, and picture you're 87 years old and you know you don't have more than a few days or hours I mean, you're looking back on your life, what would you wish that you had done differently? And so that actually has led me into different paths than I otherwise would have taken. That's really interesting. And I'm definitely going to do that now. So of, of the kind of the deathbed testimony, the records that you found, which ones were you sort of most surprised by or which ones stood out for you? You know, there was a royal mistress named Agnes Sorel. Uh, she was the mistress of uh, Charles VII of France, and most people know him as the king that Joan of Arc helped. And she was only about 28. Two books ago, The Royal Art of Poison, that researchers actually found out she, was, she had been poisoned mm -hmm. with mercury by her enemies at court. But, you know, she had all of this power and all of this wealth, and she's lying there in the bed. She's just, you know, soiling herself. Wow. And she says... It is a little thing and soiled and smelling of frailty. And she died. Those were her last words. And I think she was talking about, you know, her physical body mm. and this material life. And, and that one really, really got me. Agnes Sorel, they excavated her body, didn't they? And there's been, they've reconstructed her face yes. from her skull. Yes, they did. And She's so beautiful, like the really striking face. And they she? found that she was eaten up by worms in her intestines. That's less sexy. Yes. It, well, I think you know, so many people had worms back then. A few years ago, French archaeologists were digging up the old latrine pits in the Louvre Palace. So between the 1300s and the, I guess, 16, 1700s, you know, they're looking down there and there are remains of, of worms. I mean, in every... In every soil layer. And the horrible thing about worms is that sometimes they would come out of your mouth. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, they, so, okay. But I guess it was pretty uh, standard at court. So she had worms. They found evidence of worms um, in her, uh, the urn. And the thing is that they would treat uh, worms with uh, something called fernwood. I guess it's a plant and a teeny tiny bit of mercury, which, you know, mercury would 
poison you know small organisms and sometimes it was effective sometimes it it worked for syphilis say but they found like a hundred fifty thousand times uh the amount of mercury that she should have had which is why they knew that she had been poisoned worms and mercury that is a sorry end to one of the most powerful women in europe at the time isn't it this is why i would you know having written the royal art of poison i would never want to go back in time, not even to a ball at Versailles. Because I come back with worms, smallpox, head lice. I mean, it's just not going to be That's It's so, whenever you're watching historical dramas or and, and you're watching them, like the characters have sex or, or you seduce one another, and you just, I'm sitting there thinking, but they would have stunk. People were conscious of how they smelled and they wanted to be clean, but the standards and what they had available to them were vastly different. And the diseases were rife. Like you said, like, where are the nits? Where's the, the terrible breath? Where's the, the body hair that you never seem to see on recreations? Well, walking through um, one of the royal palaces today, like Versailles or Windsor or whatever, you see the beauty, but you don't smell the stench. Mm-hmm. Right. And every room had overflowing chamber pots in it. And worse than that, at certain courts, the courtiers would just drop their pants and do their business on the floor or on the stairwell or in the hearth and then expect the servants to clean it up. And a lot, a lot of times the servants were like, oh, I'm not cleaning that up. And so it would just stay there and people would have to walk around, you know, in the corridors of yeah. the of the palaces. I found records in England and, and France from the 17th and 18th century of people describing just the uh, the filth. When Catherine of Braganza, who was the the queen of Charles II, came over from Portugal in the 1660s, you know, she was this very young, uh, naive girl raised in a convent. One of the reports back to uh, Portugal said that, uh, that Catherine and her ladies uh, were shocked. They couldn't turn a corner without seeing great English pricks battering against every wall. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, that's... I mean, it's just, like, the more you talk about it, the more horrendous it sounds is that that royal sex isn't like, you know, you see in the TV and the movies. It's smelly and it's gross and it's perfunctory and punctual and organised and all of these things. I mean... Did the king and queen sleep in separate beds or did they always sleep in the same bed? Oh, together? each one had their own apartment. So so each would Not have a, a suite of rooms. Sometimes, like in Tudor times, they were often one above the other. So the queen might have the ground floor and then the king would be above her and then there might be a staircase in between. Sometimes in other palaces, they were different wings, but they were sort of matching where you'd have a, you know, a bedroom and uh, like an audience chamber and a, and a parlor. Yeah. And then they, they would agree on a certain night to come together. Oh, that's how it worked. Okay. So there wasn't like, like you sent a memo or you sent a messenger from one end of the palace to the other. This was an organized sex night we're having sex now that's that's yes it it would be organized well i suppose it had to be right and but it's is it kind of a myth that there were lots of people in the room at the same time i I know you said that there was the initiation ceremony but there's there were so many servants that would have been stood around would they have vacated the royal yeah i think the the you needed time to organize it because the king and queen might have had 10 or 12 people that would spend the night in the room on on pallets if it was cold the queen might have a lady in waiting in the 
bed to keep her warm. And the, and the king, um, you know, as well would have his servant. So all of these people had to organize where they were going to be that night. And I imagine that there would have been guards posted at each door and perhaps the king would, I don't know, ring a bell or call out that, you know, you can come in now so that they would have someone, you know, if the king and queen were going to sleep, like really sleep in the bed, that there would be someone at the foot of the bed, a guard, but probably after the sex. It sounds less and less sexy the more I talk to you about this. But just to kind of finish up, what I'd love to know is what's your favourite royal love story? And who from your research did you just come away thinking, you absolute scumbag? Because it's it's so wide ranging, your research, everything from Holland and Spain. It's just fantastic. You've covered so many stories. Was it, who stood out? Who are the heroes and the villains? Oh, gosh, there are so many. You know, I think my favorite royal mistress was uh, Madame de Pompadour mm-hmm. because, yes, she was ambitious. And there's nothing wrong with a woman being ambitious. You know, it's fine for men, but somehow not fine for women. And she was very bright. And she, But above all, she was kind. You know, the king had had a variety of mistresses by the time he latched onto her. Four sisters from the same family, if you can believe it. And, you know, they had not been kind That's to the queen. That's a Christmas, isn't it? Wow, yes. okay. <laughs> the, these other women had been very unkind to the queen, who was several years older than the king, and she was this plump Polish princess and not very charming or smart. And she was just hurt. And Madame de Pompadour was so kind to her and, you know, had her rooms redecorated and all of this, you know, religious art that the queen liked and always showed her the greatest mm. respect I really like the uh, the kindness story. Now I'm trying to think of the worst ones. Oh, I know a good one. Bianca Capello was the mistress of uh, Grand Duke uh, Francesco of Tuscany in the uh, 1500s. And he was married to an Austrian archduchess that he never cared for. And so the two of them had an affair and the archduchess wasn't that healthy. Every time she sneezed, I think Bianca's hopes soared because she got the archduke to say he was going to marry her, you know, if she had a son when his wife died, you know, hopefully that would be sooner Mm. rather than later. So Bianca had had a child when she was about 16 and she could never have another one. So now she's in her 30s. So she hires three healthy uh, peasant women who are pregnant around the same date, thinking that one of them will surely be a boy. And one of them is, and then she pretends she's pregnant, but she doesn't let anyone touch her because she's, you know, very sensitive to that. And her maidservant smuggles the baby in, in, in a basket while she's screaming and in labor and has sent the doctor away. And then, and then they, she lets them all in and, oh, here's the baby. And so she... Oh my God. That is that's commitment to that particular and the grand role. Duke, the Grand Duke accepted it, and uh, you know the story got out. The maidservant talked, and then later she was murdered. It was a real problem because the Grand Duke's brother was a cardinal, and it, it looks like he poisoned both of them because he oh, was afraid no. that this little boy, would, who was not related to the to the uh, Archducal family at all, would inherit the throne. So he poisoned his brother and his sister-in-law. And then he made this poor kid a knight of Malta who uh, was sworn to vows of chastity. He could not contract a legal marriage. So that's how he he solved that. But I thought that was wow. really quite a stratagem, you know, to get yourself into the uh, the palace as the uh, Grand Duchess. 
Oh my, I mean, that is some epic planning or a lie that got wildly out of hand, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that makes me wonder, has that ever been successfully done before? We just don't know. Well, I think it's clear that some queens have had progeny that were not the kings. Oh. I think it's clear, yeah. I mean, there, there's so much at stake. I can understand the desperation there, that you've got to have a baby if you're going to keep this position and this role and this money, basically. And, and you know, before DNA testing, no one could really be sure. Right? I mean, you... right, absolutely. Just, to, you know, keep the child in the shade quite a lot and just keep having people repeating. Absolutely, looks, looks absolutely the spit of you. <laughs> Oh, it's been so, so lovely to talk to you. And I honestly, please go and read Elder's books because they are just absolutely wonderful and fantastic. And thank you so much for taking us betwixt the royal sheets. Thank you, Kate. I really enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed a stroll through the royal bedroom. Thank you so much to Eleanor Herman for joining me today. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the next few weeks, we've got episodes on vasectomies, corsets and a whole lot more. Head to our channel to check out some previous episodes on shoes, Tudor sex and all kinds of historical smut. This episode was produced by Charlotte Long and Sophie G. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.